There were four things that, to make a long story short, there were four things that I felt the Lord gave us uh, to be themes of things he wanted to do in us in this year. We together as a, as a leadership team really sensed the Lord saying that he wanted us to become a praying church, a spirit-filled church, a relational church, and a missional church. Now, it doesn't mean that those things weren't already moving, that God wasn't already doing those things among us. Certainly he was, but felt like the Lord just got out this big... Uh, you know, spiritual highlighter and kind of highlighted those things as themes that he was wanting to pursue with us this year. And so you'll know and remember that we spent the fall talking about prayer, both on Sunday mornings and in our micro churches. And um, felt as I felt as though the Lord, I was gratified to see the Lord begin to, to I don't know, freshen up our, our um, uh, role as men and women who come before him in intercessory prayer. And and that continues to this day, and I'm grateful to see that happening among us. And then this winter, we, beginning in January, we spent uh, two and a half months talking about the Holy Spirit and, and uh, how he wants to empower us, uh, how we, God intends for you and I as Christ's followers to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to live the kind of Christian life we read about here in the book of Acts where there's this amazing story of what God does among his people. And now as we, be, we uh, come into the spring season, we're going to begin to talk about what it means to be a relational church because, dear ones, I think you would agree that it's, it's not enough. It's never been enough, but it certainly isn't enough this, today to just attend church. God, there's a longing in each of our hearts to be part of, to be uh, grafted in, to be rooted in the body of Christ. And so we're going to talk about that by visiting the, a number of the passages in the New Testament that contain this word in Greek, alelon, which is translated by two English words, one another. It's, you'll, you'll find it in the New Testament about a hundred times and about you know, two-thirds of those times, it's directly, uh, oh, God is directly speaking to how he intends for believers to live, what he wants for us to be like, how these two words, one another, English words, one another, Greek word, all alone, affect the, the character of God being lived out in my life. And so we're going to be dealing with that and. um, I asked you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 41 to 47. You'll remember, because we spent so much time in this book at the beginning of this year, that the book of Acts is about the birth and the expansion of the church. And it is an amazing story. It, it's, it's, uh, when you read, there's no more dramatic, marvelous words in, that have been written in any uh, book anywhere than you find in the book of Acts. A people caught up in this grand um, expansion of God's gospel through the world, through the, the, through the church. It's, it's amazing, the stories that you read there. Um, and just to sort of set this, these few verses in context, Acts chapter 2 describes that moment when a relative handful of Christ followers, 120 people in an upper room, 
Obeying what Jesus said when he told them, don't leave Jerusalem until you are filled with the Holy Spirit, are just waiting there in this room, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And it is such a dramatic scene that the city, the whole city of Jerusalem, which is bulging with Jewish pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, come to this place where these people are being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in languages they hadn't learned. And, and just the drama of it all captures the whole city. And the most unlikely guy you would imagine stands to speak. Some of you would be familiar with the apostle or disciple Peter, a fisherman that Jesus chose to be one of his, uh, one of his followers. And Peter, dear, you know, God bless him. He was always the kind of guy who would speak and then think about what he said later, you know, and, and evaluate. And he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. He was, in fact, he's just come, when we encounter him here in Acts chapter 2, he's just come through a process of having denied to even know Jesus three times. And Jesus restores him marvelously. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But he stands up on this occasion of, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the celebration of Pentecost, and he declares the gospel. And the first, his first sermon, and the Holy Spirit moving through him captures the hearts of the throngs of the people and they say, oh my goodness, how can we, how can we experience what you've experienced? How can we know this Savior? Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear or wonder or reverence came upon every soul. They were breathless. They were caught up in something amazing. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together these were people who wanted to hang out together. They were with each other on an ongoing basis. They needed each other. And they had all, thing in, uh, all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And before you start to think that this is a description of some hippie commune someplace, let me just say, this is not about you know, some form of you know, Christian communism. This is a description of people who were so in love with one another that they didn't consider the things that they possessed to be theirs alone. And if someone had need, then you have access to it. When it says there they sold their possessions, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was required. In other words, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a part of this church, you need to sell everything. This wasn't one of those kind of things. This, the word there that's translated in the English Bible as sold in the Greek really means we're willing to sell or would sell. In other words, if you had need and I could meet that need by selling something I had to provide that for you, I would do it without thinking twice because we were in love with each other. They were in love with each other. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is such an exquisite description of the church at its birth, church in the raw. Yeah, it will, you know, it will develop. There will be things that they'll have to kind of figure out administratively for how to, 
how to uh, manage a, a church of this size and all of that, but wow. To, I just want to, I, I do periodically just come back to these few verses just to remind myself what church is supposed to be like because, dear ones, I, like you, can easily find myself with a different way of thinking about church, having a different kind of paradigm than when we, about church, you know what I mean by paradigm? A way of thinking. And I can easily develop a different way of thinking about the church than what we describe here, or what's described here in these few verses. And in fact, I'll be honest with you, that a lot of times these days, when I think about church, I think about something that looks like that. Because that's the model that's always being held up in these days of what church is. And look, this is what I'm about to say right now has nothing to do about the, the value of a megachurch. The church on its birth, its very first day, had 3,000 people in it. And every day after that, more people were added to those numbers. So the very first church was a megachurch. So this is not a knock on megachurches, okay? But what we tend to think of these days, more often than not, when we think of church, is we think of an experience. We think of a place. We think of a program. We think of an event. Look, the truth is, uh, I verify that this is a, a worship gathering that's pictured here. But honestly, couldn't that just be a picture of any rock concert anywhere in the world? But we tend to have this model in our minds these days about what church is. And it isn't the model we read about in Acts chapter 2. It isn't the paradigm. The church we read about in Acts chapter 2, they gather together thousands strong every day. But they also broke bread from house to house. And they were so in love with each other that that was the hallmark of what church was about to them. So the church at its birth looked a lot more like this than the picture that I just had up there. Because their paradigm of church was about people. People. They never, those early believers never thought of church as a place. They never thought about church as a program or an event or something that we would attend or contribute to. They only thought of church as us, people, the body of Christ, the organ, organism of the living Jesus in this world that I am part of and an indispensable part of. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and it talks about how every part of the body is essential. I can't get along without you. You can't get along without me. I know that's a hard thing to imagine, but yes, yeah, the truth, we need each other. And that was the paradigm of those early believers. They thought they, they did not consider anywhere in their thinking about church as a place or a program. Early in my uh, ministry life, when I was training to be a pastor, one of my mentors told me, Randy, he said, uh, we will never speak of the building the church meets in as the church. Now, that was hard for me because I grew up talking about, well, hey, I'll meet you at the church or, you know, let's hang out at the church or let's go to church or what church do you go to or which church do you attend? And we're talking about a place, right? And he said, Randy, that, that kind of speaking, that kind of talk, that kind of vocabulary is no longer going to be allowed with you. Man, that was hard. 
And I've had conversations with you that come a little, become a little awkward. Some of you, and you'll say, hey, uh, can, I, can I meet you down at the church? And I'll say, well, I'll meet you at the church building. Or I'll say, I'll meet you at CR, or Crossroads. A little funky. But it's important to me. I've come to the place after, and I'm grateful for that mentor that I had, because I've come to the place now where I can't bring myself to talk about 4325 Cordelia Road as the church. Amen. It's not. It's a place where the church meets, but the church is people. People. We need a paradigm shift if we're going to understand church the way the Bible describes it. The, the word that's translated in your English Bible as church, C-H-U-R-C-H, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. And that word simply means called out ones. Called out ones. It's about the people. And it was first used by, in the Greek language to talk about uh, the gathering of the citizens of a city or a county or something like that in a geographic region, the gathering of the people. It's used in the Septuagint, which is a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament of, uh, Old Testament of the Bible. It's used there to describe the gathering of the people of Israel. It's about people, ecclesia. And one, we understand that the church is a body, not something to attend or contribute to, not a place or a program. Then we can start to understand the one another's of the New Testament. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, John chapter 13. The, John is the book right before Acts, so you're close by. John chapter 13. Jesus is speaking on the night of his betrayal. This is when he's with his disciples in the upper room and they're having what we think of as the Last Supper. You know, that's going on. Jesus says to his disciples, he says this, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, we've, we've met the first of the two one another's that we're going to be dis, uh, studying over the next few weeks. Twice that phrase, or that word in Greek, alelon, is here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says to his disciples, I mean, these are some of his final commands to them, some of his final directives to them before he goes to the cross. And he says, I, I'm going to give you, listen up, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And as you fulfill this commandment, that will be the thing that identifies you as my followers. When people see you fulfilling this command, they will know that you are Christ followers, Christians, Christians. What was this new command? We read it, to love one another. But the new part, because really that's not, that part of the command is not new. In fact, it goes all the way back to the books of Moses. Leviticus Verse 19, verse 18, it says, love one another as you love yourself. 
Jesus reiterated that earlier in his ministry. In Matthew 22, he quoted from Leviticus and he said that to his followers. He says, love one another as you love yourselves. Now, at first that sounds a little self-centered and selfish. It isn't when you think about it because how can I love you truly or purely if I really am kind of messed up with how I think about myself? If my self-image, my self-esteem, my, the way I think about how God loves me, those things, if they're screwed up in some way, I'm not going to be able to love you very well. And so it was a godly thing directly from God, a command, love one another as you love yourselves. And right, good thing. But Jesus now says, now, a new command. I'm going to put a different spin on this. Now, love one another as I have loved you. Oh boy. That takes it to a whole nother level. Because the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us is a self, uh, self-sacrificing love. And I'll talk a little bit more th- about that in a minute. So we have, dear ones, if we're going to experience what church was meant to be, if we're going to open up to what the Lord would like to teach, to teach us through this phrase that's repeated so many times in the New Testament, one another, we need to embrace a new commandment. You know, one of the things that I hear so often when visitors are with us here at Crossroads is they will say to me over and over again, in fact, it happened just this morning, somebody for the first time, and they'll, they'll say it to me after the service, wow, I felt so welcomed. And they'll often say, I felt so loved. You know, can I just tell you, I start smiling. I, I, there's something goes off in me about that. I'm just thrilled to pieces about that. And it is true. So, you guys are so good at this. But there's more. There's more. And the Lord is calling us to a deeper kind of love. If we're going to be a relational church, it has to go beyond the surface to a deeper place. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And it is that love that sets us apart as believers. It is the calling card, the hallmark of the church of Jesus Christ. Now turn to 1 Peter, way back in the little bitty books of the at the tail end of the New Testament, 1 Peter and chapter 1. Let me remind you of a story I, I alluded to earlier, but I'll, I'll kind of flesh it out a little bit now. Many of you, as I said earlier, are familiar with Peter. He is a, a, a character you can't miss when you're reading through the New Testament. He just, he just stands out. And I think that was meant uh, by God because a lot of us are like Peter and so it's good to kind of see ourselves in those pages. But as I mentioned, when Jesus was tried right before being sentenced to crucifixion, Peter was approached three times and uh, asked or identified as a follower of Jesus and he flatly denied it. In fact, on one occasion, cursed and said, I don't know that man. The regret, the grief, the sorrow, the shame that followed that for Peter, I can't even imagine. But Jesus, after rising from the dead, and we talked about this a few weeks ago as well, he, he 
met Peter and the other disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, revealed himself to them alive again there, and restored Peter. It's a glorious story, John chapter 21, uh, how the Lord um, just causes Peter to, be, to know again that, that he's forgiven, that he's called, and all of that. Beautiful, lovely. In that story of restoration, part of what's going on is the Lord is confronting Peter about something. He says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep, giving him an assignment, restoring him. He's restoring him. Then he says again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. A third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And feed my sheep. Now, that's on one level, uh, well, there's so many things going on in that little exchange, but uh, one of the things was kind of behind the scenes. There are actually two Greek words being used in that interchange for the word love. When Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word, in the first two times, he uses the word agape. Peter, do you agape me? Now, the word agape in the Greek is a word that talks about a, it describes a sacrificial giving kind of love, one that isn't looking for anything in return, one that's primarily a choice and has really nothing to do with what one might gain from loving someone. And uh, it's a word that became co-opted by the New Testament to be used only about the love of God. It's a word, when you, whenever you encounter it in the New Testament, it's talking about the love of God, the kind of love that God has. We could, as human beings, we can't arrive at that level of love. And so the Lord says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds and he says, Lord, you know, I phileo you. Phileo is a, another Greek word that's translated by the English word love, and, and, but it's more about brotherly love, about the kind of, of uh, love that, it's, it's a high love, it's a great love, and when you're experiencing it, it's wonderful, but it has to do with relationship, it has to do with common interests, common history, it has to do with reciprocation. In other words, honestly, the truth is when you stop loving me, there's something about me that doesn't want to continue loving you anymore either. It kind of is dependent upon the reciprocation of love. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's a level of love that doesn't rise to agape. And the Lord was confronting Peter about the fact that there was more for him to grow into in terms of love. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And the Lord says again to him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I, I phileo you. He's being honest, and, and thank God for that. But then there's this point where it must have really hurt Peter at first, when the Lord the third time says, Peter, do you phileo me? Even challenging that, Peter, do you phileo me? You say you do, but do you phileo me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. And in that exchange, the Lord was setting Peter up to grow into a deeper kind of love. 
And then when we get to 1 Peter, the book I asked you to turn to, and now Peter, this same guy, is writing a letter to the churches, to the Christians. We hear him and we see him having grown into that place the Lord was calling him into. Verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren... Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, when I used to read this verse, I used to scratch my head because it sounded so funny. It's like Peter's saying, well, congratulations, you have stepped into faith in Jesus Christ and become obedient to, the, to his word and received his gospel and you're loving one another. Dynamite, awesome, good job. Now, would you just love one another? And I thought, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And the honest truth is, as long as I've been studying the Bible and preaching sermons and being a pastor, I never until I was preparing for this message decided to look into the Greek words that, be, that are here. And you know what? You, you can probably tell where I'm going. Peter now, having received that lesson from Jesus, speaking to the believers everywhere, he says to them, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere phileo of the brethren, agape one another fervently with a pure heart. Agape one another fervently with a pure heart. Dear ones, as believers in Jesus, members of this outfit called the church, it's all about people not about places or programs. The Lord is calling us to be ones who agape one another. Now, phileo is a human love. It's, it's not a bad love. It's a good love. It's, it's the highest love that a human being can achieve by alone. It, it has to do with affection. It ha it's reciprocal, as I mentioned. But agape is divine. It requires God enabling me to go to a higher place in how I love you than I could go on my own. And it's primarily about a choice that I make. I choose to love you. Not because I like the way you look, not because we have anything in common, not because of anything. I choose to love you. And I choose to love you sacrificially. I choose to lay down my life for you. I choose to offer to you. I choose to give to you. Whether that drains me dry and you never reciprocate in any way matters not. I choose to love you. God is calling us to that kind of love in his church. It's different. Really different. And that's why he said when people see that, they'll know you're my followers. If we're going to be a relational church, dear ones, that means we're going deeper. This is recording number 11207 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, April 10th, 2016. This is the first message in a series titled, One Another. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, A Relational Code Part 1.